0: Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week, we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life you can check out our course platform at onecommune.com where you will find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact. Essentially, everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. Com. If you are one of the superheroes on the front line, a healthcare professional, supply chain worker, delivery person, a scientist, a biologist, or a government worker, I want to thank you for your service. If you could benefit from a meditation course on your phone, in your pocket, just email me at jeffk at onecommune.com, and I would be honored to set it up. Also, I have started writing a weekly Sunday article called "Commusing," where I wax alternately poetic and sometimes pathetic around spirituality, philosophy, culture, and sometimes family. If somehow you actually want more of me in your life, sign up for the newsletter on onecommune.com, all the way at the bottom. And yes, I suppose if you're completely desperate, you can follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. On to the good stuff. My guest on the show today is a triple threat, the musician, author, and meditation teacher Biet Simkin. To say Biet has had a tumultuous life is like saying an astronomer is interested in stars. She has experienced all swings of the pendulum, from signed recording artist to rock-bottom addict, from motherless child to becoming a mother. Thank God her father taught her to meditate. While literally, she was still in diapers. Biette has emerged from this madness with a rare mix of passion and awareness. She's found a lust for life inside the neutrality of consciousness. Today, we talk about her book, Don't Just Sit There, The Fourth Way, Divided Attention, How We Identify Ourselves, and of course, Death. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Biette Simkin. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to COMMUNE.
1: My family immigrated from a communist Russia in 79, and I was born a month later. So they had literally immigrated a month before, and my dad, had cured himself of tuberculosis in the woods of Russia with a secret shaman. Um, And so he was like this newfound Torah reading Jew and mystic and newly uh, God believing. He had always been uh, an angry, chain-smoking atheist. And so this was like this huge transformation. And so he had actually decided to have um, uh, circumcision because in communist Russia that wasn't something that was being done. At the age of 40, with no anesthetic, to prove his Judaism to God or whatever. And so he had just had an a un- unanesthetized circumcision, and my mom went into labor with me. And she gives birth to me in this hospital, which is Elmhurst Hospital, which is like basically like the seat of the coronavirus right now, which is yeah. so ironic. And, Um, gives birth to me in a couple of hours. My mom was more like a baby machine. She just kind of like popped babies out pretty easily. And she calls him up, you know, after the two hour labor or whatever, and was like, I just had your daughter. So please come to the freaking hospital. And my dad's like, I can't walk (laughs) because he had just had this unanesthetized surgery. And she's like, yeah, you're going to come here now. (laughs) So he like hobbled over to the hospital to meet me. Anyway, that's how it all started. And then soon after that, uh, she passed away of pancreatic cancer out of nowhere. And anyone who's ever dealt with pancreatic cancer knows that it's not like a thing where like for years you get to like write letters and like have feelings. Like you literally get the diagnosis and then right after that you die. So she died and then everyone else died. My whole family came here with two sets of grandparents. You talked about music. My grandfather was the first chair violinist for the Leningrad Philharmonic which again, because of communism, also isn't a great way of making a lot of money, which is ironic because it couldn't be a more prestigious position. Mm -hmm. But uh, they came here, all of them, and within a couple of years after my mom's death, everyone was dead, except for my brother and my father. And my brother became like this angry metalhead as a result of what happened. And my father, um, my father was this awakened shaman guy, you know, and so like, A lot of people, when they lose a parent, they end up with a parent. I ended up with an awakened shaman. So it would be like if you, like your whole family dies and then you end up with this person who's like, you know, there is no meaning to anything and everything is made of oneness. But he wasn't like just fucking around. Like he wasn't some guy who was a hypocrite. He genuinely was in that state 24 hours a day. And so I studied with him my whole life, Um, but I don't think I was able to deal with how much pain I was in from having lost my whole family and the poverty and like the heaviness of being an immigrant and all the, all the feelings that I had. And so when I was like in high school, all that stuff, I started making music to deal in poetry to deal with all that pain and reading philosophy and all that. And I got signed to Sony when I was 19 years old for singing singer songwriter. And, um, that led me into like a 10 year bout of like debauch, New York City nightlife, high society, DJ, in the fashion world, art scene, all that stuff. But like hardcore drugs were a big part of all of that. And um, and I was still pursuing spirituality. And I think if you talk to anyone who hung out with me during that time, some of which those people like liked me and others didn't, uh, but they would have said that I was like this weird, person who spoke about the meaning of life at seven in the morning on cocaine, you know, that kind of person. And so that happened. And then inside of that, I had a near death experience. I also had a daughter who died of sudden infant death syndrome when I was 26 years old. And then my house burnt down and then my best friend hung himself. And then my father died out of nowhere of a heart attack. So All of those things kind of happened very quickly over a period of about two years, but I was just so, um, self-absorbed and addicted to me. Like it felt like good reason to continue doing heroin and to do more heroin. Like you, I lost the baby and I was like heroin. I lost my friend and I was like heroin. So it was just, everything felt like a reason to do more heroin. And then one day, I don't know how, but, About 11 years ago, I just had this and I was doing Gurdjieff work, the work that my work is based on today, the fourth way. And I was just doing divided attention and divided attention and divided attention. And one day I just had this kind of white light moment where I floated up and saw myself from above. And for the first time, I could see that I was this depraved drug addict, that my life was going nowhere and that within 10 years, Like I could seem I was 29 at the time and I was like, huh, like at 40, I'm not going to be where I want to be. Like I wanted to have a rich, successful life and a husband and children and Lord knows what else. And I kind of just did the math really quickly. And I was like, oh, wait, like, I think that if I just keep doing heroin every day for the next 10 years, like at 40... I'm definitely not gonna be in that position. I'm gonna be in a very different position. And that realization dragged me into sobriety and I got sober 11 years ago. Hmm. So that's where, that was the beginning.
0: Yeah. Well, and I've read that, um, I think literally that you were meditating in diapers, um, You know, very much because of your father's influence um, So it wasn't as if you were unaware of other forms, I suppose, of tools that could give you the same connection that you probably were using drugs to try to actually find and achieve. But during that whole period, while you were, you know, chasing fame and fortune and, and I, as you called that kind of debauch decade, were you using, were you practicing meditation and, and other forms of, I guess, wellness modalities?
1: Oh, yeah. I was like leaving bikram classes to go snort cocaine. Or one time, <laughs> one time I was having, so one of my best friends was like, she is, she's an heiress to one of the largest art fortunes in the world. And so, of course, you would think that person would want to spend time with me in the projects, which is where I had one of my, one of my estates then was in the, in the Chinatown projects. So she would come down there with me. And there was one event I remember specifically, she was dating some guy, whatever, like some, I don't know, some irrelevant dude. And he was on crack and she was on crack and they were smoking crack in my living room. And I was doing a bunch of heroin and I did this heroin and then I walked away, like I sauntered out of the living room and I was like, I'm gonna go meditate. And I walked off to the bedroom to go meditate on heroin. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with them doing crack? Like they're so like beneath me and blah, blah. And then I woke up after meditating and then like sleeping for whatever amount of time that heroin has you sleep, like nine hours. And I walked back into the living room and they had just run out of crack and having like a major fight about how they were going to acquire more crack cocaine at that time. And it had been like, you know, now it's like 2 p.m. the next day, basically. So my my point of telling the story is to say that, yes, I was doing those things, but I was too lazy and self-absorbed to do it in a way that required payment. And for anyone who is listening to this podcast, I think we can all relate to really not wanting to delve into the discomfort of real work. No one wants to do an hour and a half of, you know, strength training, Pilates, and yoga. No one wants to do hot and cold. Showers every day. No one wants to wake up early and meditate for 45 minutes and then do like breath pranayama No one wants that But then they want the riches of the life that that affords them for free And the truth is is I did get that when you snort heroin when you do LSD when you take mushrooms You get all those perks and the price you pay is the complete destruction of your life your body your mind and a distance a, a distance from your soul that you never ever want
0: hmm. so I know because you, you talk about um, you delineate between different kinds of suffering in your book um, and it, it sounds like at some point you made the bargain and you traded drugs and alcohol and that lifestyle for some degree of what you call conscious suffering. Um, is that a fair understanding? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I think it was baby steps, you know, like whatever I thought conscious suffering was 11 years ago when I got sober. um, I think I knew that as time went on, my practice would become more and more enlarged, right? I I don't know if you can relate, but I feel like as I become greater and greater at life, the price that I pay for that on the conscious suffering end is, is higher and higher. It's not like the 15 minutes of meditation that I did 11 years ago is going to cut it now.
0: Yeah. Um, It does seem though that, and I'm not sure I would attribute or ascribe this to drugs, but that you had certain kinds of mystical experiences throughout your life um, that were very important inflection points um, and, and I wonder, you know, for example, I think I read in in your book um, where you were hearing a voice every night for a certain series of nights that essentially instructed you not to eat. Um, yeah. And maybe you could tell that story. You'll tell it better th- than me. But that it was because of this mystical experience that you had that actually led to an incredibly important health discovery in your life. Um, and and I wonder if, if, were you always having those sort of celestial or mystical kinds of experiences, or do you think drugs played a part in helping you understand and see the world outside of the limitations of your five senses? I mean, uh, and I'm not here to, um, to necessarily recommend drugs, but I wonder if you make a connection there of like, oh yeah, I was opened up to another way of receiving messages of the universe because I I was able to expand my mind outside of you know of my limited instruments to perceive reality.
1: Yeah, I would say that's true, but I wouldn't say it was because of drugs. If anything, drugs were like um evidence that what i had known to be true my whole life was true so it's kind of like i remember having white light experiences and feeling very connected to the celestial plane growing up and then when i did mushrooms and lsd in high school age i was like i was right like it's true you know it wasn't like i was seeing something for the first time i was just being like Vindicated, is that the word? Like I was like being it was proven. And um, yeah, I do. I did have had white light experiences, quite a few, and I don't know if anyone can relate to this or if you can relate to this, but in between those white light experiences, I had life. And that was the thing that I couldn't bear. I could bear white light experiences. I could bear celestial states. It was life that really tripped me up. like, Rent, work, money, hot bods, getting what you want, going for it, ambition, like showing up sunlight. That was really creepy to me at, at some point in my life, like daytime was very like, just freaked me out. You know, it was, it just seemed like too much pressure.
0: Um. So then you had a moment of, I guess, 11 years ago and you just went clean. I mean, did, cause that's, that's, I would say rare to just have the ability to go kind of cold Turkey from a place of rock bottom, but is that how it worked for you?
1: Yeah, it literally went cold Turkey. Um, I implemented several tools, that I know that I wouldn't have gotten sober without, like community and, um, you know, meditation. And I, I did things non-negotiably during that time. And I went through spiritual practices and I had a spiritual teacher, but, um, but yeah, it was over. I did have like, I had like some bouts where I was like trying to figure it out. I started trying to get sober in November of 2008. And I really got sober in January, 2009. So there was about a two month period where I was like, maybe I could do ecstasy. And, but I had been sober long enough. I had like 21 days. I was like counting the days. And I had 21 days of sobriety when I did ecstasy. And I was standing in my bedroom naked with the guy that I had been dating on and off for like nine years or whatever. And I'm standing there naked on ecstasy in complete shock and looking at him and being like, oh my God, like this is not as good as sobriety. And this guy is not an addict at all. And he was like. What are you talking about <laughs> what are you talking he's he just didn't care at all and i was like this is it and that day was the last day i ever did anything and mm. so that the next day was january 31st 2009 and i have just never picked up a drink or a drug after that
0: wow so the fourth way um to be honest i wasn't particularly familiar with it until i started reading um your book so Uh, I wonder if you could describe a little bit of it, uh, its origins, what it actually means, and how you're thinking uh, about it.
1: Yeah, so it's a philosophical system, um, and it was brought to the Western world by a man named Gurdjieff, who was like this really intense, crazy cult leader type of guy. Um, He was the teacher of other crazy cult leaders, such as Osho, and, um, and my teacher, and he was my father's teacher. And I studied his work and the work of Fourth Way with my father growing up. Fourth Way is basically just a philosophical system, which my book is basically like a dialed down, easy to understand version of. But the idea is that we're living underneath these laws. And these laws are created by being a human on this particular planet. Like these laws don't exist elsewhere. They exist here as a result of the solar system that we live in and as a result of the glandular system that we have within our bodies. And there's a map inside of fourth-way work kind of attuning those two things, the glandular system with the solar system and how those two things are matched. Well, some of the things that really drew me to fourth-way work is that it's based on verifications and not based on um, like woo-woo stuff in the sense that like astrology for instance like if i don't if i'm an astrology person then i say to you oh you were born october 6th you know 1975 okay well then that must mean that you're really organized and you're like you know you're moody or whatever right but with uh, fourth way it really is just a system of inquiry it's a system of okay we believe you're underneath this law let's say you're you're underneath the law of lying or you're underneath the law of whatever, right? The law of seven, which is the law of success. And here we're going to teach you the system and then go out into your life and just see whether you're underneath this law or not. So I loved the practice of fourth way because it was applicable to my life. And they always said inside the teachings, if this doesn't ring true for you, or if you can't verify this in your own life, then throw it away. Like, don't worry about it. Just focus on the things that you can verify.
0: That's interesting. It's, um, I suppose it's kind of alloys the spiritual and the empirical on some level where it's not just like, well, I'm going to read some dusty old text with the blind faith that a man with a beard and a Merlin's cap might eventually, um, you know, open the doors into heaven. Um, you know, which seems, um you know, far-fetched, uh, but full of beautiful mythology that has been useful and, and, and wonderful truths. Um, but this feels more like a scientific or r- empirical roadmap to success. Uh, like, here's the principle, you do this, and you'll get this, which feels
1: mm-hmm.
0: reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
1: It's strong. And it's also very Western. So like I obviously, like any spiritual person and anyone on a spiritual pursuit began my journey with Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism. I read all of those texts. I read the Bhagavad Gita and I was like, this is me. And, you know, and I still feel very at home when I go to like Amma, the hugging gurus ceremonies and stuff, I love chanting and like the shaking of the bells and all the Hare Krishna stuff. I love that stuff, but I could tell on some level that there was a bullshit level, bullshit factor for a Western person who was of a Jewish descent to be like pursuing those things without any, you know what I mean? Like there was just this kind of like hipster with a trucker hat, irony going on there it's kind of like you're not from a place where trucker hats even exist you're some privileged fucking brooklynite you know so i felt like that and i felt like wouldn't it be more radical to pursue a study that's based in western art and in western teachings and in like the medicis and in uh the bible Because it felt kind of also, I think sometimes when we're on a spiritual pursuit, if you do something that's exotic, that may feel like the cool thing to do. But I think sometimes the weird, icky, like, oh, now I'm studying the Torah, like, that's not, there's nothing glamorous about it. And then that's where I found the most um, juice is actually looking at things that aren't very glamorous.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So then you... I suppose leveraged um, some of your work and your study of the fourth way. And, and I guess the, uh, before we move on, the other thing that I think that's interesting about the fourth way is that it is very engaged in the active modern life um, yes. versus a platonic contemplative life of a, you know, recluse in a cabin in the Santa Monica mountains. Um, that's me right now. Um But that um, it it sees this one spiritual path as very engaged within society, not removed from society. Is that correct?
1: Yes. It's fourth way is the way of the householder. So it actually, you know, what I loved about COVID uh, when COVID began is turning to my fourth way wisdom and my fourth way bedrock was like. Fourth Way doesn't guarantee circumstances. It says like your life is the circumstances under which you will either find enlightenment or not find enlightenment. So if you can't find it during COVID, then you're not a Fourth Way student. You're actually just a bullshit artist. You know, like, because the idea also is like, as a fourth-way student, you're you're saying, I'm not giving up my life. I'm not giving up my income. I'm not giving up my real estate purchases. I'm not giving up my shopping at Barney's, unless, of course, they go bankrupt. Like, I am in it to win it. Like, I'm in it for Grammys, Oscars, you name it. And that's actually part of the whole fourth-way mentality, is that it's a secret spirituality that's happening in the faces of our leaders, of the people who are actually up to shit in the three-dimensional world. And that really drew me to it. I felt like, okay, I could get with that because at least then I don't have to throw out the scariest thing I have going for me, which is my ambition.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems that one of the very central tenets that you established early in the book, but that weaves its way through so many of the different laws and your practice is this notion of divided attention. So can you take a a few minutes and talk about what that is?
1: Yeah. So why don't we just do divided attention for a moment together? Mm -hmm. So just basically, like, notice your body, where it's seated. And feel your shoulders. And then just if you're looking at the screen like I am, take one attention to be gazing at me. I'll take one attention to gaze at you. And then another attention take to any sounds that may be around. And then with yet another attention, notice your breathing. So now try to do all of those at the same time. Gazing, listening, feeling your body, breathing. And with a final attention, and this is the one that really is the tool that puts it all into gear, float above yourself with your imagination and try and see yourself from above. And imagine that you and I are like in a movie, like some Czech movie from the 70s. And we could see ourselves from above. See the curve of our face, the way that we gaze, the way our body is seated. And then try to do all of those things at the same time. So for anyone who's listening to us right now, if you've tried this with us, it does change your state pretty instantly. And this is the kind of code of the secret mystical work. I have done that exact practice in front of audiences of thousands of people. I have done that exact practice when I was in the face of something that I thought was way more exciting than I could handle with my personality self, I've done it while cooking eggs, I've done it while having sex, I've done it while shopping. And I've also done it in more uncomfortable situations, such as looking at spreadsheets or doing workouts in the morning that I don't necessarily want to be doing. And so, the, something about that allows me to say, okay, I'm going to have a spiritual practice, and what happens inside of my life is not going to I don't need to stop everything I'm doing. Go sit in Lotus, light some incense, read some scripture. I do all of those things because I feel like it, but I don't have to do them. Like enlightenment is available to me as long as I use these tools of divided attention inside of all circumstances.
0: Would you describe it on some level as cultivating the observer's mind and Essentially, being able to put some space between you and your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts, and being able to be the experiencer of those things, but not to be those things, um, mm. essentially to be the witness, the subject-object kind of relationship that, um, that is sometimes referred to in Buddhism. Is it, is it a similar phenomenon?
1: It can be. I think the thing about divided attention is that it's just a tool. So it's kind of like meditation in and of itself in that it doesn't garner the exact same results each time. It does garner the effect of um, the effort. We'll never be forgotten the efforts that we made. But then in another chapter of the book called Self-Remembering, which is really remembering who you truly are, like you're describing, seeing that you are the observer, that is a phenomenon that I would put under the grace category. It's sort of like when a third force enters and you feel like with every sense in your body, you can truly remember who you are. So divided attention doesn't necessarily produce that effect 100% of the time, but it's like a practice. You just do it all the time and then sometimes white light.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the law of identification? Because I think this one is just massively prevalent um, in humans in the 21st century and, and what that means and then how you go about verifying it.
1: Sure. I mean, identification is a really good one because it really cat- it bites you in the butt. We get identified with all kinds of things, but I'm so curious if you could ask me or tell me more about because you you read about it. So, what about it struck home for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, despite all of my work on myself and practices that I you know undertake on a regular basis, I still have um, a healthy ego that rears its head that bases my own identity in the approval of others, which is often uh, attached to some form of status or that I may or may not have um, a a job title or something that I I have some form of my resume or credential, essentially something that that doesn't really define the experience of what it is to be me, But it's still that I cling to as a form of identification. So, you know, Jeff started Wanderlust, whatever. Okay, great. You know, and that I have a certain identification with that that makes, that gives me some sense of like false pride or self value. But at the end of the day, those, that can easily come and go, and it has. So, um, for me, it was for me, that's where I resonate with that idea of uh, I'm identifying as particular things that that the world then approves or doesn't approve, and I base my identity in those things instead of really just being at home with my true authentic self.
1: Mm. Yeah, I really relate to that, and I think that is exactly what this law is about. Well, it's really, I don't think that it can completely go away. Like I feel like the law, but again, these are laws that don't go away. So if you read my book for the rest of your life, every day, infinitum, like you'll never be like, oh good, I'm, I am got that one down. Like mm-hmm. they just return on new levels and new ways. But I feel like identification is like riding a wave. It's constantly bringing you up and then crashing you down and then bringing you up and then crashing you down. And I think it can be very painful as ego driven um, people like we are and I am um, to let go of that. Like it's the sympathetic nervous system versus parasympathetic nervous system addiction. I feel like what I've come into contact with with the law of identification most recently is that I have an addiction to the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to do things that bring me there and so it's been really a release of saying, like, I don't want to be identified with things that are going to draw me away from my parasympathetic nervous system.
0: Mm, yeah. Right. Uh, you know, that you may um, feel a certain kind of resentment, for example, for someone that has wronged you. Yes. And that that resentment becomes almost this twisted place of comfort where all night long you can brood over that um which as you say you know puts you right in your sympathetic fight or flight cortisol fueled reality um yep. which is its own form of addiction and we yep. we become extremely comfortable in that discomfort um and uh until i think we can develop some of um of these practices and you know When I go back and, you know, when I think of that notion of a divided attention, you know, I try to then isolate the fact when I am brooding over some form of resentment, I'm like, Jeff, don't be that resentment. I mean, someone else might have wronged you, but you're the one that's getting burned right now. And what you need to do is witness it, separate yourself from it and realize that it's going to come and go you know you might feel this resentment now but it's just a cloud you know you be you know you're the be the sky and i think you know when you can develop patterns um that can bring you out of that those places of negative comfort um you can live a much more fulfilling and happy life
1: i completely agree yeah, and I think it's also, but it's it's a trade-off and it's a sacrifice. That's what people don't, I think a lot of people don't understand about spirituality is that it. when people ask me what I've sacrificed, um, I remember having a talk with the, with a family member of mine where they were like, well, they think of sacrifice as giving up like ice cream, right? I think of sacrifice as giving up things that are terrible, like <laughs> gossip and um, self-absorption and overindulgence and snacks and like laziness and um fucking whatever you know like social climbing and i mean the list just goes on and on of things that i have totally like engaged with in my life but those are the sacrifices to sacrifice the qualities that uh, make me feel safe and secure, but are destructive, self-destructive, and all based in fear, mm-hmm. that's a sacrifice. And I think people just think spirituality is all about like becoming a better person. It's like actually less about becoming a better person. It's just about not being such a dick
0: all the time. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it feels that one of the things that I've been playing around in my head recently um goes to the nature of consciousness and um is the innate nature of consciousness neutral or is it good love empathy compassion etc and um when i read your book my my sense is, is that we are kind of cultivating a place of neutrality in our lives that we can access um, more easily. And that from that place of neutrality, because we don't need anything from the world, then it is easier than to focus our consciousness on love and compassion, but really we return to this place that is very neutral. Is that, can you help me unpack that a little bit or talk about that a little?
1: I think it's like neutrality, but also with a taste of like love and bliss. So it's not so, because I think neutrality can be seen as like literally nothing, but I do feel like there's also a tinge of like beauty and lust and not lust, like in the dangerous evil sense, but like lust for life and deliciousness and i feel like that's the soul like our soul is this beautiful um, little you know in the work that i teach we talk about it like a little white horse that's been locked up in a barn with no sunlight its entire life so when you pull the soul out it's like very feeble and kind of it hasn't seen the light of day a lot like if you think about your life And you look back and you think, when was my soul really present for whatever thing I was up to, whether it was a dinner or a festival or, uh, you know, a lovemaking experience or whatever you were doing? When was your soul actually there? And if you're really honest with yourself, you're going to notice that it's not everything. It's not like your soul was like in it to win it with every thing you've ever done. So it's about cultivating comfort so that your soul can feel safe being not just a member of your life, but running your life, like actually coming in and being like, this is where we want to go.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm glad that you describe it that way because sometimes the pursuit of consciousness of sort of a neutrality oriented consciousness, a sort of a value neutral consciousness feels like a very cool pursuit you know and there's not a lot of you know passion and as you say lust but in the kind of the lust for life kind of way yeah and um and that yeah i mean i'm not sure that the life that we're looking for is one of complete and utter detachment
1: i don't think that's possible because we're human and i just think it's a bunch of bullshit honestly i feel like Humans are, like you said, you created Wanderlust. Like, this isn't, there's no world in which that didn't happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, that happened in my world about you. That happened in your world about you. And there's all those pieces. And I just feel like we're lying to ourselves when we don't admit that those things are interesting to us or delicious to us. On some level, every person listening to this and everyone that they've decided to have in their lives has something about them in the 3D world that makes them appealing to them.
0: Yes. And defines, I suppose, who they are. I mean, and this this is another concept that I've been grappling with a bit, which is that are we the sum of our experiences or not? And, or are all the stories that we've lived through, are those just sort of the contents of consciousness? But that's not who we actually really are. All we really are is sort of the experiencer of transitory phenomenon happening moment to moment. Um, And so what I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand who the fuck I am basically and i'm just experimenting to and fro and so that has come that that has started to play central stage in my life of whether or not the stories that i tell myself about my past even really exist or not right All right, death. We're gonna talk, We're gonna try to tackle death. And It's been on my mind a tremendous amount. Um, I actually did a, some research on the Black Death, which was the plague that happened in the 14th century, kind um, of mostly in, in Europe, but um, but that killed you know somewhere between 150 to 200 million people, and significant. And, um, you know, hum- humans viewed death much differently than than they do now. You know, there was sort of a helpless resignation to death because death was the providence of God and that, you know, God essentially decided, you know, when it was time to go and that the Black Death in and of itself was created by God, not as a virus that started in a Wuhan market or something like that, but that it was created by God, and you know, the believers lived and the non-believers perished. Um, we have obviously since kind of the advent of science and enlightenment, enlightenment-based principles like reason and rationality and medicine, all that kind of stuff. We tend to think about death very differently in modernity, where it's not we don't really ascribe it to God. We think about it in terms of kind of medical and physiological terms of like, you know, it's generally like someone's fucking fault. If you die, it's like I overate or I made the wrong lifestyle choices or the doctor screwed up or whatever, that it's essentially very much in the realm of the, of human instead of the realm of God. And that has really um, changed the way that we think about meaning in life. Because when, when death was sort of the providence of God, meaning happened in the afterlife, in heaven or hell or in reincarnation. But now that we feel such a strong control over our own death, our own mortality, that it seems like we ascribe more meaning now to this life that we have, this lifespan of 80 to 100 years, and that makes us do things i think i think that that makes us live in a lot of fear mm-hmm. because we're so worried about death and you know i mean you were you're younger than i am but certainly like when i grew up there wasn't as many seat belts and helmets and there was tons of diving boards and we were just in the back of the fucking pickup truck like jumping around, like, going crazy. And there's been this kind of ever, you know, well-intentioned, but, like, <laughs> constant layering of safety and safety and safety. And now in COVID,
1: like worse now.
0: now yeah. it's like the whole next level of, like, masks and elbow bumps and mm-hmm. social distancing. And, you know, where are we willing to go with this? Are we essentially willing to succumb <laughs> to total surveillance in the name of... A, Like denying death so anyways I'll stop there and you know wonder if that elicits any thoughts from you around how you have thought about death
1: yeah I love what you're saying and I I too have often pondered these like the seatbelt helmet you know phenomenon and everyone what everyone's predicting is coming oh my god or like even post 9-11 what we have to endure to get on a fucking plane I mean it's obvious, it's insanity And so, you know, everyone, like everyone died in my life. Um, I I don't take my life for granted. Like, I think a lot of people maybe do because they just haven't endured the amount of death that I have. So they just think I'll probably live tomorrow. I've never thought that. So I just, every day when I go to sleep, I'm just like not really certain there's another day coming. And every day when I wake up, I'm pretty shocked. Sometimes I wake up and the first thing I do is I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to die one day. That's like the first thought that I have, which maybe it's just because I'm Jewish, but you know, the of like my grandparents being shot and thrown into ditches and like, you know, my my great grandfather was shot in the head by Stalin's regime in front of my grandmother's eyes. Like I have so much death in my life. And uh, what that has helped me with is that when COVID started, I was just kind of like, I just don't understand how this is different from before, like it's it feels exactly the same to me. Like I woke up, I could die, and I'm still here, and then I'm gonna die one day. Like that's all that I really know. Um, with that said, I just feel like it's not about. Yeah, I don't think life is worth preserving on that level, and I and I do believe in God. Again, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe that we have a we have an expiration date, and I don't think that expiration date changes given how many things we endure. So for instance, even if I got COVID and even if I got really, really sick, if I wasn't meant to die at this age and if I wasn't meant to die of COVID, I won't die. And that's just how it's going to go. Like I had a baby a year and a half ago, baby Cash, who you, you've met. And she, after she was born, I went through a near death experience after she, she was born for a week. I was literally on death's door. I don't know what happened. Something with my uterus. We took me to the ER several times. No one knew what was going on. And after a week, it just stopped, but it was the sickest I've ever been in my whole life ever. Like I prayed to die. That's how sick I was. I literally was like, If this is really how it's gonna go, God, like just take me and I didn't die. So all this is to say like, it doesn't fucking matter. Like it doesn't matter how sick you get. I've had near death experiences. I've taken too much heroin. I've mixed heroin with cocaine. I've speedballed, like I've been in fast moving cars. I've been arrested. I've been in jail. I've been almost raped. I've been mugged at gunpoint. Like I've had all this shit happen to me and I'm still here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, look, I'm gonna fucking die when it's time, and there's nothing I can do about it because I remember after my daughter died, my first daughter uh, Ula, like I just was like, I ran through that fucking memory over and over and over, thinking, what if I just hadn't given her to the the baby daddy? What if I had just stayed with her? What if I I ran through it, thinking, what could have I done differently to keep her alive? And what I finally concluded after years of Insane ruminating was there's nothing I could have done It doesn't matter if I stood on my head Read a tarot deck like did a witching. Well like got sober in AA. it doesn't fucking matter She would have died because that's what happens when people are meant to die So I think taking on that celestial level like taking aside the you know You can put on a seatbelt and in Jewish tradition. They say this thing which I love which always really supports me they say if you're meant to die, you will die. But that doesn't mean we don't put a railing around the balcony. (laughs) You know, we just put it there like, you know, but we just help, we help the process as much as we can. So if I'm gonna drink kale juice and like do Pilates for an hour every day and meditate for half an hour every day and like live a life that's esteemable and filled with achievements and like in pursuit of greatness, that's great, but I don't take it for granted that it could be taken from me at any minute.
0: Yeah. Does your life now surprise you? Uh, I mean, you have a, a wonderful partner, Christoph, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and a beautiful little baby. And, um, and it's, I guess from the outside, it's a bit more tame. Yeah um is is that a surprise to you and how do you deal with it given just like the speed at which your life has traveled at times yeah
1: i mean i think i made a switch you know, I, I feel like what's surprising to me most, again, is that communion between myself and the divine. Mm. So I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes when the universe is speaking through me, I'll literally be surprised by what's coming out of my mouth. That's a moment when I know that synergy is happening. I also feel that when certain meetings occur, like when I meet the right people at the right time. And magical things come out of those meetings or when I win an award or when you know Simon and Schuster's like we want to give you a book deal like that kind of stuff is the now version of what used to be destruction so I do believe that we have a choice we can live a life where and I had to switch it out my heroes you know I was just talking to someone about this the other day like I always thought that I was going to be Basquiat you know and it just didn't work for me. And also it didn't work for him. He's dead. But like, you know, I, I really thought that that was something to like live for. And one day it came to me that I actually want to be like Mr. Rogers. Like that is, you know, and that was so gross when I had to admit that, like, cause I was like, Mr. Rogers, like you couldn't even get through an episode of that guy when you were a kid. And now you want to be like him.
0: Well, he was, he's a hero. Now, there was actually quite an emotional film on him, so it's, it's, it's not um, a badge of shame. Do, do you think that consciousness, or essentially awareness of yourself as the experiencer of phenomena in life, did that just kind of spring forth from a certain combina- lucky combination of atoms? Or is there a form of divine intelligence? and I know that you I know that you believe in God. I mean we talked about how how you experience God. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is when my corporeal when this meat wagon ceases to exist um yes. Right now, it houses my consciousness in a way that it takes it different places. It'll take it across the room. It'll take it to the bathroom. It'll take it on a walk. It'll take me right here. When this corporeal form is no longer able to transport my awareness, what the fuck happens to it?
1: You know, I mean, I have to, like, say I don't know because that's the correct answer. But I think that if we all close our eyes in our own time and just feel into our body, into our core, into our heart. And in meditation, if you ask yourself that question, I do believe in each human being, the answer to that question lies within us. The answer to the feeling of what happens to us, the bliss of what happens to this, what you're calling consciousness. I think it's hard to imagine because the mind is such a jail cell and it will prevent you from experiencing. The breath work that I teach, um, that I was speaking about before, I find brings me into a state very close to death. In fact, I warn my attendees when I'm guiding people to brace themselves because sometimes you can be afraid, oh shit, I think I went too far and I might die now. No one's ever died at my events. And so what I'm saying is, I try to go into this breath work every day because I want to get closer to death
0: Hmm.
1: i want to get closer to the sense of complete lack of brain prison and body prison so that i can be completely with bliss and that sweetness and as one of my teachers said to me that feeling that i have during breath work is one iota one billionth of the bliss that we feel when we die And it was once I really felt that correlation between the breath work that I do and death and that bliss, that I was like, that sounds great. And I'm still a little bit wary of the moment of death. Like Woody Allen says, I'm fine with death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs)
0: Like
1: I with that a lot, but I do think it sounds really delicious after the moment it happens. Kind of like working out. You know, when you're working out and you're like, doing like the 17th tummy tuck or whatever. And it's like burns like fuck and you go, ah! But after you're done with an hour of it, how does one feel? Like you feel amazing. So I do think that death probably sucks like the moment it happens, but right the moment, right after the moment that it happens, my feeling is that it is just pure ecstasy, deliciousness, freedom, bliss.
0: Hmm. yeah. I suppose they call, I think the literal translation of savasana is corpse pose. So this is where we're going back to, we're going um, home. And um, and yeah, no, I think that, that that is hopeful. And you know, I look at like, um, you know, the resources and the endless amounts of anxiety that we put ourselves to essentially keep people in terminal condition on life support. Um and um and as you can tell I've been preoccupied with notions of dying lately. And um and how uh you know how that's how how only not not only is that not a fulfilling and very dreary experience, but it also has changed how we actually view our elders um, uh, who used to be sort of these uh, holders of ancient wisdom. And now they're essentially um, a burden and a bother. Um, And, you know, it's really, um, it's really disturbing. And I, you know, I, I'm hoping that in this time when people have a little bit more time to contemplate that the, these issues, that there is this notion of dying well instead of just living forever.
1: Yeah. I'm with you. I, but I also, I, I'm really with the Marcus Aurelius way of perceiving it, which is a man who dies at 80 and a man who dies at eight, a boy who dies at eight have only ever lost the same exact thing, which mm. is the present moment. You can't lose a life. Like you don't have more life or less life. You only have this moment. So if you die, like my first daughter died at four months old, you she lost the present moment. And then if you die at one hundred and eight, you know, on a ventilator somewhere with COVID, like that's all you have.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I can't wait till this crazy, wicked mess is over because now. What I really want more than anything is to find out what laws forty-five through forty-eight are, <laughs> and host an immersive retreat with you leading them here in Tabanga. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me this afternoon. And um, yeah, I'm wishing you and your family well and safety in the thank you. and I uh, hope to see you soon.
1: Yes, I can't wait. And I, I believe neither of us will die from this, but I do believe we will die one day.
0: Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to learn more about Biette and her work, just go to bietsimkin.com. And as always, feel free to email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. I try to respond to every single email and I love to hear from you. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow and I am here for you.